Good. Great. You all set? Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm Mark Pipus. I'm the Fellowship Director for Hematology Oncology, as many of you know. And it's uh, my pleasure this afternoon to introduce Dr. Britt Holderness as our speaker. Uh, as many of you know, we, are, we graduate three fellows a year from our program, and each of the fellows uh, has the opportunity and the privilege to give a uh, Norris Cotton Cancer Center grand rounds as the, sort of the capstone of his or her fellowship. Um, and it's my pleasure today to introduce Britt, whom I've known for a number of years. Uh, Dr. Holderness um, completed her fellowship and her residency here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Before coming to us, she uh, was graduated from Florida State University with the bachelor's in biology and went on to a master's in classics also at Florida State. She attended Ross University at, in the Dominican Republic before coming north to uh, Dartmouth. And she will be leaving us in July to go to Findlay, Ohio, where she's going to be joining a single specialty group. Um, Britt uh, started doing some work very early with Dr. Ornstein here in hemophilia and uh, thrombosis and uh, was rapidly swept into the major leagues um, with, in part because of this, and, and I think did a national conference, or international conference. You chaired an international conference in hemophilia and arthropathy as a first-year fellow, which was, I'm sure, a, a growth experience for her. It would have been for me. Um, and she will be speaking to us uh, today uh, in part on that topic, on joint disease in hemophilia. Uh, Dr. Holderness has, uh, unfortunately, no financial interests to declare, uh, and she is not going to be discussing off-label or investigational products, and she's not receiving any direct payments. So please uh, uh, welcome her this afternoon, and thank you for your attention. Brett. Thank you, Dr. Pipus. That was working, right? I'll just do that. That'll work. <clears throat> so as he said, I have no um, conflicts of interest to disclose. I'm going to start today with a case. This is a 29-year-old male with severe hemophilia A, which is a factor VIII deficiency, less than 1% of normal levels. He was diagnosed shortly after birth um, when his family noticed excessive bruising. He came to know this cancer center, at the hemophilia center in 2009 at the age of 24. And at that time was reporting a history of pain in his right knee, which improved after each of five synovectomies um, since 1997. So the synovium is a vascular membrane that surrounds the joint space that tends to bleed in this population and um, the joint pain and bleeding can be abated to some extent temporarily by either stripping the synovium mechanically or with radiation. And so he had had some of those procedures. At the time he comes to meet us, he is having pain in his left knee, and he identifies the left knee as a target joint um, responsible for 19 of 20 recent bleeds. So the outline of my talk today is as follows. I'll give an introduction to and review of hemophilia and its clinical manifestations. I'm going to give some historical information about hemophilia. I'm going to talk about treatment of hemophilia and the joint disease that can come from having hemophilia. 
I'll give an overview of joint replacement and the perioperative management of this in patients with hemophilia, including what we do about thrombosis prophylaxis. I'm going to present the results of our retrospective study, and I'm going to discuss <clears throat> what is new in hemophilia management and how it pertains to joint disease management. So hemophilia is an X-linked recessive disease that um, presents clinically in male offspring of female carriers. So mom has a normal X and an X that is affected and passes on either normal X or an affected X to her male offspring. The males manifest this clinically because they have um, a Y and not another X to compensate for um, making the factor that's deficient. <clears throat> hemophilia A is a factor eight deficiency. And this is much more common than hemophilia B, which is a factor IX deficiency. <clears throat> the clinical manifestation is bleeding, which can be anywhere, but has tendencies in certain age groups. In new babies um, can have CNS bleeding. They just sort of bleed more easily from their CNS anyway, and so um, that can happen. And then um, a lot of these are a function of what each group is doing. Um, so sites of mechanical intervention for babies like venipuncture or circumcision can manifest as excessive bleeding. In little kids, um, bruising of limbs or joints, joint bleeds, um, they can have forehead hematomas. Anyone that has spent any time with little boys understands why they would get forehead hematomas. Um, in older children and adults, it's mostly joints and muscles. A mild, um, mild disease would be 5 to 39% of normal factor levels. Moderate would be 1 to 4%, and severe would be a factor level less than 1% of a normal level. And this threshold of 1% is really clinically significant. Um, when you are below that, you have much more spontaneous bleeding, much more severe bleeding, and when, if you can have your level above the 1%, um, it's clinically meaningful. So hemarthrosis is the most common type of bleeding experienced by ambulatory patients. It accounts for about 80% of bleeds. Um, it can occur spontaneously in people with severe disease. Oops. Um, it, it happens by, by way of bleeding of these vessels in the synovial membrane of the joint space, and it can affect one or, or a number of joints. Repeated bleeds into the same joint can lead to a susceptibility of that joint for future bleeding. And the way that this happens is that um, blood in the joint space irritates the synovial membrane, causes proliferation of the synovial membrane, which leads to increased vascularity of the membrane, and um, therefore more easy bleeding, and um, therefore more bleeding, and then more irritation, more proliferation. And so it's a vicious cycle that um, manifests in a chronic synovitis, ultimately a chronic arthritis, and joint destruction that can severely impair the mobility of these patients. <clears throat> and these are just some representative pictures for comparison. Um, on the right, a normal joint, and on the left, an affected joint. And you can see the difference in the joint space um, between the healthy joint and the affected joint. You have erosion of the joint space, you have bone on bone, and just overall joint destruction. It's easy to see. 
So our patient um, reports that long periods of standing cause pain and swelling in his knee. He keeps a cane in his car. He's only 24, but he needs a cane. And, um, but is optimistic he can walk a mile. But for a 24-year-old, that's, that's, you know, that's not totally normal. Um, he occasionally has buckling of his knee. And over the two years following from the time that we meet him, he has um, increasing pain in both of his knees, initially controlled by Tylenol and steroid injections, but ultimately progressing to require opiates for management. And this is a radiograph of his knees at the t this two years after meeting him. The right looks a little worse than the left, but you can kind of see that there's a little bit of narrowing of the left joint space as well. In 2011, he undergoes um, bilateral total knee replacement. Follow-up note from a year later says that he is thrilled with the results of his surgery, he wishes he had done it sooner, and he would definitely do it again if faced with this decision. He says that he's back to full activity without limitation imposed by his knees, and he's very happy. And this is the after of his joints. So the history of hemophilia is quite interesting, and it goes back a long, a long time. Um, for centuries, really, people have noticed a, um, a congenital disorder propensity for bleeding that manifests in male offspring of seem seemingly normal mothers. Um, the Talmud is an ancient Jewish text that recognizes this um, disorder, describes it as loose blood, as opposed to normal blood, which is held fast or coagulates and um, actually states that for women, if they were to have two sons that die from exsanguination after a circumcision procedure, then they are not to circumcise their third son. And similarly, if two sisters from the same family each have a boy who dies from exsanguination after circumcision, the third sister or subsequent sisters are not to circumcise their males either. This surgeon, whose name I cannot pronounce, in Spain, um, also notes um, a hereditary um, propensity for excessive bleeding in male, male offspring with just minor trauma. Closer to home, Dr. Otto um, published a, um, an article in the New York Medical Repository called An Account of a Hemorrhagic Disposition in Certain Families in which he called the affected males bleeders. He's, he notes that they're born to apparently healthy women, and um, he traces the origin back to our very state um, in 1720 to a woman who settled in Plymouth, New Hampshire. You can't talk about the history of hemophilia without talking about the European royal family. And this goes back to Queen Victoria, who had no family history of any congenital bleeding disorder. And so um, there was some speculation that perhaps her mother had had an affair with a hemophiliac male and that this was how she came to acquire this um, mutated X chromosome. But um, then this was sort of debunked because males affected by hemophilia living in that time rarely lived beyond their teens. And so um, what we've come to accept is that she most likely had a de novo mutation that led to a factor IX deficiency. She had some kids more than this, but for the purposes of this, um, this story, we'll just stick to the ones that are affected. She had a son named Prince Leopold, 
who had hemophilia and he had very bad joint disease from his hemophilia and winters in England were cold and rainy and just really hard on the joints in general and so his doctor recommended that he um, wintered down in Cannes and so he had a home down there for the winters and one winter while he was down there he slipped and he fell and he um, bumped his head and he died of cerebral hemorrhage. Her daughter, Princess Beatrice, had two children, a son named Prince Leopold, who also had hemophilia. He died during a hip surgery, so he was affected by this joint disease as well. Um, Victoria had two boys, Prince Alfonso and Infante Gonzalo, who both had hemophilia and both were bad drivers and um, died in minor car wrecks that produced injuries that would not have normally been life-threatening had they not had this disorder. Um, Princess Alice had a little boy, um, Prince Frederick, who fell out of the third story window onto his head. So not hemophilia's fault, but um, he was known to manifest as a disease as well. Empress Alexandra um, married the, the Russian Tsar, and they tried desperately to have a male heir to um, the, not the throne, but you know, someone to take over the, the royal duties. And they had four girls before they finally had this boy, um, Alexei, and were devastated when they found out that he um, had hemophilia. And um, I'm gonna talk more about him in a minute. He was actually murdered in the Russian Revolution. Um, Princess Irene had two boys, Prince Henrik, who died after a minor fall, and um, Prince Waldemar, who actually lived into his 50s, which was remarkable for the time. Um, but eventually died um, during World War II because he, of a lack of access to blood transfusion products because of some of the political things that were going on. So this was an interesting character, Gregory Rasputin, who he was a peasant born in Siberia and um, had this major tragedy in his life when his young son died. I could not for the life of me figure out how his son died despite um, pretty avid research into it. But after this, he joined a monastery, he had some sort of religious transformation, and became this like mystical um, faith healer guy who wandered around Siberia with a band of followers and um, sort of practiced medicine by praying and meditating and telepathy and things like that. Um, Alexandra, the mother of Alexei from the previous slide, she was very desperate to help her son um, in ways that doctors didn't seem to be able to be helping him with his hemophilia. And so she very much believed in um, Rasputin's ability to heal um, telepathically. And he became very close with the Russian royal family because of this. And um, he did a lot of praying over Alexei. He used an, um, hypnosis. And um, she felt he was able to control his symptoms of hemophilia. The Russian people were not very happy with this relationship, with his relationship with the royal family, because he was also known to be somewhat of a raging alcoholic and um, very promiscuous. And so there was some worry that, that his intentions were not totally good. Um, when Alexei was eight, he had a pretty bad injury to his groin. The doctors at the time thought he was going to die from this injury. Um, so Alexandra frantically contacted Rasputin and said, um, and asked him what to do, and he said, 
The little one will not die if you do not allow the doctors to bother him. So she sent away all the doctors. She stopped all of their interventions. And he actually did get better. And the thought is that they had been using aspirin to deal with um, some of the pain and inflammation. And um, this was obviously exacerbating the bleeding. And so um, it sort of endeared him further to them. <clears throat> Unfortunately, they were all murdered in the Russian Revolution. But that's another story. <laughs> So um, the treatment of hemophilia in its history is actually quite interesting as well. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was just donation of whole blood from a family member to the affected person. There's a little picture there. You can kind of see the guy has the, just kind of hooked up him and hooked up to the patient. The 1901 uh, U.S. Surgeon General's catalog includes lime, oxygen, thyroid, bone marrow, <laughs> hydrogen peroxide, and gelatin all as agents that um, could potentially be used to try to control bleeding. In, in the 1930s, um, the, it was found that the venom from a particular snake, Russell's viper, um, could cause coagulation. And the, the way that it does this is by activating um, factor 10. And um, this is good, it causes coagulation, but it also causes DIC, so not so good. Um, and we actually clinically still use this in um, an assay looking for lupus anticoagulants. So nobody gets snake venom anymore, but it's still used in some labs. <clears throat> in the 1950s, fresh frozen plasma came to be used. And so plasma is the acellular component of blood. It has the liquid and the proteins. And so you have the factors in there because the factors are proteins. And um, the problem with this was that the concentration of the proteins is very low, and so you would need to give large volumes of this FFP to someone to get any sort of meaningful clinical response, um, and that has its whole own set of potential trouble with, you know, fluid overload, pulmonary edema, and things like that. So in the 60s, they were able to centrifuge this down, take off the precipitate, and um, and this had a more condensed version, a more condensed amount of factor in there, and cryoprecipitate came to be used um, frequently for treatment of hemophilia. In the 1970s, there was freeze-dried powdered factor eight and nine um, concentrates that allowed for home infusion, which was huge because you know these people need to infuse frequently. Um, I'm skipping over the 80s on purpose because I'm going to talk about it in a second. But in the 1990s, things really um, changed in the way of recombinant factor being being available. Recombinant meaning they can make it in the lab. You don't have to get it from a human donor, and therefore you get around um, things that you can get from human donors, like HIV. Um, in the 1980s, about half of all hemophiliac patients were infected with HIV. That number is lower now because many of them died. Um, since viral inactivation technology and also recombinant factor have come around. There hasn't been any transmission from this. And that number, when I first heard it, sounded really, really high to me. And the reason for that is because just the sheer volume of product that they were needing. It wasn't like getting one tr blood transfusion here or there, which certainly was a risk at the time as well. But um, they were needing this so frequently that half of the population became infected with this. So it's a huge, huge um, problem. About 44% of hemophilia patients have hepatitis, but um, for the same reasons, this is not, this is not um, transmitted anymore this way. 
So that's how you treat the, um, the hemophilia itself, but what do you do about the joint disease that develops in these people? Um, DHMC happens to be a center for excellence in joint replacement, doing um, over 1,100 joint replacements per year. They've met um, multiple external benchmarks of quality and excellence, which are listed on their website. And so um, this is actually a known modality for um, helping with this problem. Um, and often these patients need this at a much younger age. When you think of joint replacement, you think of people who are older, but these patients can need them much, much younger, even down as low as their teens and 20s. And so joint replacement is good, but nothing is perfect, and there's always a downside. Um, pulmonary embolism is the most common cause of preventable um, hospital death in the United States. Um, accounting for several hundred thousand deaths per year. Orthopedic surgery is high risk for thrombosis. Um, part of this is because of positioning, part of it is because of sometimes using a tourniquet and sometimes the, um, just the reaming out of the bone itself and hip replacement can increase um, the clot risk following this surgery. <clears throat> Figures without any prophylaxis are reported as as high as 40 to 60 percent chance of developing a clot after surgery that's asymptomatic. That's when you're just looking with Doppler. They don't have any um, symptoms. Um, and it's 2 to 5 percent um, with symptomatic clot. And um, that's a little bit higher for knees. Even with replacement, it's just still a problem. This huge meta-analysis of 45,000 patients who underwent either total um, or partial knee or total partial hip arthroplasty um, and, and received approved um, venous thrombosis prophylaxis developed a symptomatic venous thrombosis um, prior to discharge. So those numbers are much lower, but they're not nothing. Um, so for prevention, historically, unfractioned heparin was used, and um, this was shown to significantly reduce the, um, the incidence of fatal PE postoperatively in this, um, from joint surgery. Low molecular weight heparin has been shown to be better or the same as um, at preventing this with an equal bleeding risk and less um, risk of side effects like HIT. The American College of Chest Physicians puts out guidelines um, that help to guide um, diagnosis and management and prevention of clot in various clinical scenarios, um, including atrial fibrillation, stroke, post-operative joint replacement surgery, pregnancy, all kinds of things, they recommend a minimum of 10 to 14 days of pharmacologic prophylaxis against um, venous thrombosis. I'm just noting that one, one panel member believes strongly that aspirin was not adequate. It should be one of these um, anticoagulants. And so this is in the normal population, but what do you do in a population with congenital bleeding disorders? So some have looked at this, and um, it seems to be safe um, in people who had just, people in various studies who had gotten it and were noted to have gotten it and nothing bad happened. Um, but there's been no randomized controlled study looking at this. Um, our institutional practice is to restore hemostasis with factor replacement perioperatively and then to give normal dosing of prophylaxis for venous thrombosis postoperatively, starting on post-op day one. 
So what we do is um, prior to surgery, we give infusion of factor to get the level close to 100%. And then daily or twice daily infusions of factor um, for four weeks following the surgery to keep the level above 50% and then above 30%. And then um, just prior to physical therapy after that. Um, so, uh, subcutaneous low molecular weight heparin for four weeks starting on post-op day one. And I just wanted to stress the importance of ma maintaining good hemostasis in this population because if you have bleeding into a joint, um, that sets up a nidus for infection. And so infection in a joint, replaced joint, has all kinds of sequelae that are bad, antibiotics, repeat surgery, loosening of the joint down the line. Yes? Not that I've come across. Yeah, not that I've come across. Occasionally you see an elbow or something in, in a case series, but I haven't come across a dedicated looking at shoulder replacement. Okay, so this is what we were doing, and we wanted to know, was this what we should be doing? So this, is, this was the thought behind our study. Um, so our study wanted to look at objective outcomes um, of joint replacement in this population, um, subjective outcomes, asking the patients, how was your experience with this surgery? Um, any sort of bleeding, given that we give prophylaxis and there isn't any standard to, to say whether or not that's what should be done. And then complications, including clot, um, infection, and, and, and long-term complications. So I had the distinct privilege to present the results of this study at the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis a couple of summers ago in Amsterdam. And they actually asked me to moderate this session, which was quite an honor. But it also came with this Miss America sash, <laughs> which was a bonus. <laughs> and you can see how good of a job I did, because look at this guy. He's like mesmerized by my presentation. So that was a good trip. Um, we included in our, um, in our patient population 26 males and two females. And the females got in there by way of von Willebrand disease or factor 11 deficiency, which we um, included. Accounting for 38 procedures, 29 knees and nine hips. Um, those are their mean ages, about in the 40s. Our methods were retrospective, chart review. We called the patients and we asked them about their experience. As I mentioned before, we did standard um, practice for here, factor replacement for four weeks, and um, low molecular weight heparin for four weeks was given in 76% of procedures. I have some paper chart. Some of these were from so long ago that I have the actual physical paper records in my office. So um, it, it may be that earlier on this wasn't exactly how it was being handled, but I could only find that it was given in 76% of cases. <clears throat> so we found that um, the knee, in the population of knees, so this is a little bit... Um, this is at two months, so it, it, we could assess the knees at two months and at 18 months. And I say over here, this is the number of patients who had improvement at this time period. So about a quarter had an objective improvement in their range of motion at two months. And this was the um, median and range of degrees of range of motion improvement. 
And then um, at 18 months, this number was higher. And in the hips, many of them had pretty significant improvement right away, objectively. Nobody was worse. We were able to get in touch with about 80% of our subjects, accounting for about 80% of the procedures. Um, that's the distribution of hips and um, knees. And I was really overwhelmed by the positive um, responses that I got. Everybody improved, had improvement in their pain. Um, in the knees, all but one had improvement in the um, function. In the hips, everyone had improvement in their function. And in the knees, everyone said that had they had the chance to go back and make the decision again, they would definitely have made the same decision to have the surgery. And in the hips, despite the fact that everyone had improvement in their pain and their function, one person said he wouldn't do it again. I'm not sure why. But that's, that's the facts. <laughs> they told me. The low molecular weight heparin had to be discontinued early in three patients for non-joint-related bleeding. One person had hematuria. Two, pe two people had hypotension and anemia postoperatively. There were no occurrences of symptomatic venous thrombosis. Complications early on included cellulitis. These numbers are very low. Um, hemarthrosis in two people, but notably they were not people who were receiving the prophylaxis. Late complications included aseptic loosening of the prosthesis, leading to revision, uh, one with a joint infection, one with a worsening flexion contracture, leading to revision. And these were years later. So we concluded that joint replacement for um, arthropathy related to congenital bleeding disorders is an effective way to improve um, joint pain and function. And we also concluded that um, thrombosis prophylaxis in the context of appropriate factor replacement appears to be safe in this population. But there are questions that are still not answered. So it seems safe, but do we need to do it is, the, is, it, is one question that comes up. So it's been reported a, a much lower incidence of venous thrombosis following joint surgery in patients with congenital bleeding disorders who, ha, who receive factor replacement um, perioperatively, lower than you would expect in the general population. Many series of a few to 79 subjects report no or a single incidence of symptomatic venous thrombosis in this population undergoing major surgical procedures with perioperative factor replacement without um, prophylaxis. There was a, um, a, a series of 29 major orthopedic procedures in which um, they screened for asymptomatic clot afterwards, and they didn't have any manifestation of a symptomatic clot, but they, were, they did find about 10% to have um, distal small clots that were found on ultrasound. <clears throat> there was, but, but alternatively, there was a study with, of 38 knees that found no incidence of DVT when, when screening with ultrasound. So this raises the question of whether it's necessary to use prophylaxis in this population. And I would say that in the reading that I did about this, um, a, a theme that came up um, frequently by authors of these various papers was that historically these surgeries have happened when people have been very young, much younger than you would be doing these surgeries in normally. And um, with improvements in hemophilia management in general over time, um, is that going to push the age 
to an older age um, where these surgeries are going to be happening. And because of that, is the clot risk going to go up? We know that as we get older, our clot risk goes up just because we're getting older. So as these patients are requiring these surgeries older, possibly, um, this seems like a question that should be answered. Some have sort of raised the question of whether you can select out people who would be at higher risk for thrombosis and do it only in this context. Um, older people with an age greater than 60, if anybody has the pres um, presence of a hereditary thrombophilia as well as a congenital bleeding disorder, um, people who are obese, and per people with a personal or family history of venous thrombosis. It hasn't been studied prospectively, though, so these are just questions that have um, been raised. And so that brings me to wonder about what's new in hemophilia management and, and how does that affect joint surgery or how will it affect joint surgery in these patients going forward? So I'm going to talk about prophylactic factor replacement, longer lasting products, and gene therapy. So this study that came out in 2007 in the New England Journal of Medicine um, addressed a topic, an idea that wasn't new, um, but had not been studied prospectively. Um, and that was, if you give factor um, prophylactically, meaning you infuse it no matter what's going on in the patient at certain intervals, or, versus just infusing when somebody has a bleed, can you hopefully um, put, you know, minimize the amount of damage that they are having to their joints? And so they randomized 65 boys. These were little boys. They were six months to 30 months, babies really, with um, severe hemophilia A to receive either prophylactic factor eight infusions every other day or just um, episodic infusions when bleeds happened. And their primary outcome was looking at um, looking at joints um, structurally with imaging. So they looked at um, ankles, knees, and elbows. So they looked at six joints in these guys. Um, the, and at, when they became six years old, they re-imaged their joints, and they looked at you know, the joint integrity in the different cohorts and um, found a significant difference um, the proportion of kids with target joints, um, the six joints normal at age six was 93% um, in the prophylaxis group, and it was 55% in the episodic treatment group. And the relative risk for um, joint damage with um, prophylaxis versus episodic treatment was 6.1. And so um, this was practice changing in terms of management of little boys with their um, prophylaxis in terms of preventing joint disease. And so 2007 was a few years ago, but it's still too early to really know what effect this is going to have on the joint integrity over their lifetime. And um, so maybe this is something that is going to contribute to putting off these surgeries until later or avoiding them possibly. There's been interest in trying to alter factor to have it um, last longer in the body. And the reason for this being that um, nobody likes to infuse themselves. And if you can space out the time that you, um, that you need to do it, then maybe you could increase compliance with 
um, a prophylactic regimen. And so a factor nine, a recombinant factor nine fused to an FC of a human, of a, of a monoclonal, of a, sorry, of an IgG, Inc it was able to increase the half-life significantly, significantly of factor nine compared to just normal factor nine that's not fused to an FC because many cells within the body express receptors for this FC. And FC is a preserved, um, is a preserved um, thing within the body and it gets recycled back through the circulation uh, multiple times. And so this um, was a dramatic increase in the half-life of factor nine and it allowed for prophylactic injections every one to two weeks uh, rather than twice a week. So this was significant. The fusion of factor eight to the FC, um, to the FC was not quite as effective and also tended to have um, more variability in terms of half-life when you were dealing with different age groups and so it isn't used quite as commonly. Other methods that have been tried include um, pegulation or fusion with albumin to try to lengthen the half-life of these. So gene therapy is really interesting. This was a very small study of six subjects with hemophilia A. And what they did was they took out some of their own fibroblast cells. They used a plasmid to transfect in genes that encode for factor eight. Um, they grew up the cells out of the body, and then they put them back into the patient. They put them in the omentum, and then they checked their levels, and they assessed their bleeding um, to try to figure out if this was um, helpful. And so four of six of these patients in, um, had an increase in their factor eight levels and had less bleeding and less use of exogenous factor eight. And the subject who had the highest response, so 0.5 to 4%, it doesn't look like a huge um, jump in that number, but just crossing that threshold of the 1% um, is clinically significant um, in, in terms of how they manifest bleeding. The but this clinical effect lasted about 10 months, and they have tried this with other methods, in including viral vectors, but um, the results have been somewhat disappointing. Factor nine has gone a little bit better. They had 10 subjects with severe hemophilia B who received a single infusion of an adenovirus vector carrying genes that encode for factor nine. Um, this resulted in a dose-dependent increase in circulating factor nine levels of one to 6%, and this lasted for a lot longer, years, really. And so this was a lot more promising, and it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. In, um, in the future. So the highest dose group, there was a, there was a much a dramatic decrease in bleeding episodes and factor infusions. <clears throat> so it's hard to talk about any sort of anticoagulation without at least touching on the oral anticoagulants. Um, and in terms of this, you know, what's new in postoperative venous thrombosis um, post prophylaxis, this has been looked at in, as in this context, but not in the hemophilia population. So they have looked at rivaroxaban. Several phase three studies have shown um, lower incidence of clot with um, no difference in bleeding when using rivaroxaban postoperatively to prevent venous thrombosis. Dabigatran has had um, somewhat conflicting um, results, two phase three studies that showed non-inferiority when compared to one dose of Olivinox and then one phase three that didn't meet non-inferiority when compared to different dosing. And a similar story for Apexaban, 
one phase three that didn't meet non-inferiority when compared to um, 30 BID of anoxaparin but had less bleeding, and then one that showed superiority when compared to the 40 daily um, of anoxaparin with no significant difference in bleeding. So it would be interesting to know what, 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 um, what these would do in this population. So future potential directions for our study would include um, looking at these questions prospectively, looking at the things that we looked at prospectively, including the objective outcomes, the subjective outcomes, um, complications, and um, possibly using um, one of the oral anticoagulants as the agent of prophylaxis in this population. And then um, maybe branching out into risk stratification like some have proposed in terms of separating out people who might most benefit from venous thrombosis prophylaxis in this population as opposed to, um, as opposed to those who would benefit less. <clears throat> so I would conclude by saying that joint replacement is an effective way to improve joint pain and dysfunction caused by hemophilic arthropathy. Um, pharmacologic thromboprophylaxis appears to be safe in this population but whether or not it's necessary remains to be seen. And then I wonder if joint replacement surgery may be needed less or at least later in life in the future due to a change in practice for, um, of prophylaxis versus episodic treatment. And I wanted to thank my co-authors for this presentation. Dr. Godo is a former DHMC resident who's now doing her palliative care fellowship in um, Boston. Laurel McKernan, who knew, who knows every single one of these subjects in the study inside and out and was just invaluable in my ability to um, get the right information about them. Dr. Bernini, who did all of the joint procedures and whose um, impeccable notes made it easy to determine um, the, the degrees of improvement in range of motion. And then Dr. Ornstein, of course, whose idea this whole thing was and who has given me hours and hours and hours of her time to, um, in, in the guidance of this project and also the fine-tuning for this presentation. So thank you. Before I forget, I, I need to remind everybody that to get a CME credit for this lecture, you need to sign the CME form on the way out or you will not receive uh, your credit hours. Thank you, Dr. Boldness. Questions? Thank you. Do you know how they transpect in those plasmids before you drain? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't, but I mean, I sort of, I get the general concept in terms of trying to introduce um, genes into the into the host genome that encode for factor eight and therefore hopefully will lead to the production of protein. Do you? Do, Do you know? I'm just curious. No, I'm, I'm wondering if fibroblasts are already transfected and sort of put in place or is this an in situ kind of they took the fibroblast out of the patient. Then they used the plasmid to put the genes into the fibroblast genome. And then they sort of grew up the fibroblast population and they implanted them back into the patient's omentum. But 
That's 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 what I know about it. I know the uh, the factor eight study is used conventional with cardiac lipids and calcium. <laughs> What would be the difference between replacing factor eight and then anticoagulating with, say, heparin versus replacing factor eight to a therapeutic or almost therapeutic prothrombin or PTT in terms of bleeding risk or prophylaxis? It seem to me get away with less factor. Yeah, it's a good question, and um, I don't I don't know because I didn't come across anything in my reading that addressed that question. Just sort of trying to think about it mechanistically, the anticoagulants just work on different points in the coagulation cascade. Um, so, no. Is there a mechanistic difference? So, so when we produce the measure intensity, it has a different meaning in terms of efficiency. just don't have a handle on what the right level of is to be a balance between So one of the Thank you. Thank you. 